1: action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume
0: one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now your ears do not deceive you you've just entered the cryptid creator corner brought to you by your friends at comic book yeti so without further ado let's get on to the interview this is Byron O'Neill, your host for today's episode of The Cryptid Creator Corner. I haven't covered a lot of crowdfunding comics projects lately, but we're going to remedy that with a huge one today because I'm sitting down with Josh O'Neill, one of the founders of Philadelphia-based press publishing company, Beehive Books, who have an amazing new reinterpretation, or okay, possibly let's just call it elaboration, of the classic children's tale Pinocchio. They've enlisted giant Mike Magnola and Peabody Award-winning writer Lemony Snicket or Daniel Handler to add their own special touches to the project, which we'll get into in a minute. But first, Josh, thanks for hanging out with me today. It's always a pleasure to get to talk with another O'Neill on the show. It's a rarity.
1: Yes, there's it. we have a connection. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Well, this, this project is big, like really big. As of recording this, it's setting at nearly, what, $350,000 in pledges? Close to or-
1: it. Yeah, I, I think so. We're over like our goal was fifty thousand, and we're over like six times. Totally, totally amazing. There's been such like a groundswell of support for this project. Incredible! In under a week, how are you feeling? Feel great. I mean, I feel so like touched and honored, and like you know, I've been so uh, we've been working on this for a long time. It's been like probably two and a half plus years. We've actually been working directly on the book, and we've been talking about it with Mike for another couple of years before that. Um, so it's just been, uh, uh, it's been hard not to talk about this before it was ready to share with people, uh, because yeah. I've been so excited about it. As it's taken on, it's like different forms as, as time has gone by. Um, and yeah, to be able to uh, actually talk about this thing and to see that other people are as excited by it and as enthusiastic about it as, as we are, um, is just incredibly heartening and, and thrilling. And I think really like deserved uh, by, by Mignola and Snicket, who just did just such, such amazing work on this totally unique edition of this book.
0: Yeah, I think probably half of the artists that I interview on the podcast will cite Mike as a, you know, as an inspiration to them. So pretty amazing to have him on the project. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about this project first and then widen the lens to bring in kind of the rest of the Illuminated Edition series from Beehive. But first, you know, why, why choose Pinocchio?
1: Well, it's just one of the craziest books that exists, in my opinion. Pinocchio is such a wild text, and it's, you know, it's despite being one of the most popular, sorry, we have a guest on the phone, uh, this is Rooster, But despite being one of the most uh, popular and most adapted literary works of all time, there must be thousands of adaptations. I have no idea how many there actually are. Um, But the original text gets a little bit lost uh, in all the endless amounts of adaptation and reimagining and re-envisioning. And when you go back to Carlo Collodi's original story, it is just so strange and kind of, almost deranged and dark and weird and unique and really very much unlike virtually any of the adaptations uh, that I'm aware of, though they all have a strain of this sort of uh, Pinocchio, you know, darkness and gloom and anarchy uh, running through them. Uh, But this original source text um, is all anarchic humor and madness and darkness and strangeness, uh, and so it, it's just such a thrill to be able to draw people's attention uh, to the actual original text, uh, which you know it, it's strange to say it's kind of a misremembered book, but I kind of think it is, despite being so well remembered. I think I think in Italy it's considered really a national treasure, and I think kids grow up in Italy. Uh, But I think outside of outside of Italy and especially outside of Europe, uh, I I don't think that many people actually read the original story uh, that often, at least not compared to the number of people who Disney movie or one of the million other adaptations. Uh, So uh, a, a big goal for us in this Illuminated editions line in general is sort of to refocus people on the original text for what it is in this moment now historically uh as opposed to the sort of all all the different like you know cliches and adaptations and different uh the, the different sort of systems of symbols and ideas that come to surround these classic texts like there's an original text that is still there and we can go still read it for what it originally was and uh that's always kind of an exciting thing for us to to sort of take things back to the context in which they were originally in and compare that to the context in which we all find ourselves. Right.
0: Now. Well, you've worked with a bunch of other heavy hitters um, on the other illuminated edition projects. You have Dave McKeon, Kent Williams, uh, Jim Woodring, um, Yuko Shimizu, yeah, uh, to name blessed. a few. Yeah. So how did you recruit Mike to work on this one?
1: Well, I mean, you know, when Maël and I founded Beehive and we first started this, uh, this Illuminated Editions imprint at the very beginning of the company in 2016, uh, we just sat down and made a list of who are the dream artists that we want to work with uh, for a series like this. And, you know, it was partially just a list of our favorite artists, but specifically artists we thought would have something really interesting to say about different texts and uh, who had a sort of narrative sensibility and an ability to storytell. And Mike was right at the top of that list, uh, when we first started reaching out to people and he was, I, I I didn't know Mike. I was just a massive fan of his work. Uh, and you know, I somehow tracked down his, his email address through somebody. I don't even remember who. Uh, and he was, you know, on that first slate of, of, uh, emails that we sent inviting people to be part of this line. And he got back pretty quickly saying, uh, oh, you know, I've always thought about doing Pinocchio. Uh, That was like the first thing he said. Um, And it was years before he was actually able to find time to work on it. You know, he expressed interest right away, but he was like, I'm so busy. I have all these projects that I'm trying to finish maybe next year. And then we'd revisit it, you know, in six months to a year. And he would say, oh, now now is not the perfect time. Like, I I do still want to do it maybe in another year. And that went on for years until the pandemic hit. And then Mike was like, "This is the perfect time. I'm trapped in my house. I have really nothing to do. Uh, I could use like a really big project to get fully invested." And he really he worked on uh, almost you know almost nothing but Pinocchio for several months. It was like his his big thing for a while, and uh, and that was at this point almost two years ago. Uh, I, I guess early. Uh, I don't remember when Mike actually went all in and did the art. I guess it was late 20. No, it was early 2021, I think was really uh when he was when he was, you know, doing his deep dive and everything. Um and so it took it's taken us a couple of years to get the project off the ground, even though all the art was probably done by summer of 2021, I think. Um, because then Lemony Snicket sort of joined in on the project. Uh which was an amazing, uh, an amazing evolution that the project took. So it's it's sort of, it sort of took on a life of its own. It had this weird snowball effect where it kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, but it was just such a privilege uh, to see Mike's creative process up close and to get to talk to him about what his vision of Pinocchio was and about how we uh, present the story in a way that kind of, kind of makes it new. Uh, but really draws attention to Polodi's original text. Um, so yeah, it's just been, it's been a wild ride. And uh, we're so lucky that we get to work with these brilliant people. And I'm, my, my goal as an editor is just always to to try to keep up with them and all of their brilliance and present their work in a way that's uh, in line with, with their intentions and hopefully lives up to incredible portfolios. We've been lucky enough to get
0: to present. Yeah, I mean, there are quite a few artists and illustrators who really had a chance to dig into their work with, with COVID lockdown. As as you say, that what else are they going to do? Um, you know, Mike released the quarantine sketchbook. Um, how did how did you kind of land on the the relative number of illustrations to include in the project? You know, was is fifty sort of a standard benchmark? Or well, not
1: really. I mean, it really varies from book to book, and you know, we have sort of certain vague minimums, certain guidelines of like, oh, we expect sort of it'll have, but they're sort of loose guidelines. You know, they're not real strictures. And then we kind of leave it up to the artist. And, you know, we've had as few as 10 illustrations uh, in some of the books that we've done, but Mike just went like all in. He just wouldn't quit. He just did far, far more than we expected of him. He did this incredible portfolio uh of of illustration um and that happens you know sometimes with some of our artists like when you work with geniuses sometimes they just can't help themselves you know they get really invested in a project that they're doing uh and uh you know this was was mike's one one chance to do a project he'd been thinking about for literally decades uh so i think he really he really just went went all in on it really totally uh, amazing thing uh watching as, you know, week after week, he would deliver just another, another email with another eight, nine illustrations in it. How much art is he going to do for this book? This is gonna <laughs> be crazy. Um, and we do a lot in, uh, in the interiors of some of these books to, to try to find interesting ways to present the illustrations, uh, from a design sensibility. We have them interacting with text sometimes in really interesting ways. And that's all, uh, my partner, Mael, who, uh, co-founder of VHive and our art director and the designer of all these books. Uh, it was fun to watch her and Mike uh, work together and try to sort of invent, invent some interesting things with his artwork. Um, so the whole thing was just, it was just a thrill. It was just like a, a ride from beginning to end. Um, and we're, we're wrapping it up now. It's still not fully designed. We're still doing the final passes on, on some of the design work. And uh, um, so it'll be exciting to see the final. Uh, the final thing in print
0: yeah i mean it, it's a really unique type of collaboration because you, you talked about mike but you also have the the lemony Snickets portion who's doing these annotations which were presented as removable type written or at least type written looking sheets which is pretty wild um it was part of that was that the original design concept or something they brought into the equation when they came on board
1: it was something they totally brought into the into the uh, equation. We, you know, for our illuminated editions, we usually commission some kind of original introduction or essay or something like that. And we've had some great uh, people write them for us. Michael Cunningham wrote one, Guillermo del Toro wrote one, uh, Darren Aronofsky wrote one. So we've had some uh, really, really wonderful contributors. Um, and it's, you know, some of our books will have several essays. Usually they'll have at least one. Uh, and Lemony Snicket was the top of our list. He was our first choice for a Pinocchio introduction. So that's what we reached out to him about. Uh, would you be willing to write an introduction to this, uh, this edition of Pinocchio we're doing? And he came back to us and said, I don't want to write an introduction, but I have something else I want to pitch you. I want to annotate the text. Uh, with the idea that Pinocchio is such a legendarily insane book, that it will drive me slowly out of my mind as I, as I move through it. And so you'll get to see my psyche sort of dissolving under the weight of the absolute madness of Colodi's story. Um, okay, that's, that's brilliant. That's amazing. Yeah, it's that's totally really cool. different from anything we've ever done before. Um, and then sort of out of that idea, we were just talking about different ways to, to present them. And we sort of thought, well, what if we did them what if it's this strange intrusion from outside the book as though Snicket is literally like typing these type sheets and stuffing them into the book. So it's like you, you have an, a normal sort of beehive illuminated edition and then you have uh, these sort of increasingly insane type sheets uh, as, as Snicket's uh, mental state is, is slowly falling apart over the course of this book. So it creates this whole second story layer, this sort of meta-narrative, of, of a, a different reader encountering Pinocchio. And it gives us some sense of, of what's going to happen to us when we read Pinocchio, uh, which is, it, it does truly drive you crazy. Time. <laughs> um, so it was just a totally amazing thing. And it really did happen organically, sort of. Uh, everything was just, well, okay, what's the next step of the process? And then, uh, then Lemony Snicket's genius kind of opened up this whole idea of how to do something different. And then the fact of what he was doing kind of led to the idea of the type sheets. Uh, and the final result is this like really unique object. It's very different from anything we've done before. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's just, just exciting. Um, and we, I mean, we tend to love like this kind of thing at, at Beehive. Like we have, I don't know if you've seen the, the Dracula project that we're working on, uh, which also has this, idea of we're representing the text of Dracula, uh, as a series of primary source documents. So it's full of, you know, typewritten notes and handwritten journals and telegrams and maps, and there's a playable phonograph record in there. Um, so I love stuff that's kind of ripped from a fictional reality, uh, and makes you sort of question where the borders of that world are. Uh, and so this is just really right up my alley as a reader and as a publisher. So um, it's fun to be able to to be able to sort of play in those,
0: yeah, when you're combining these different elements um, that you're adding in the books, different approaches, um, you know, kind of kind of what is your your mental approach to ensure that you're kind of enhancing it while still maintaining the original voice of the author?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question, and that is really central to how we think about. Illuminated edition, because um, I love illustrated fiction. I have a deep love for it. And uh, I think, I mean, I collect a lot of 19th century kind of antiquarian illustrated books, golden age illustration. Um, but I think it's really easy uh, for illustrations of like a pre existing uh, piece of fiction to to actually be kind of value subtractions in a lot of ways. Uh, because part of the appeal of fiction is that there's a sort of mental work that the reader brings. Um, we, Im- When we read a book, we imagine things. Like that's part of what a book is doing. It's kind of a recipe for imagining. something. Um, and it's very easy for illustration to kind of do a lot of that work for us uh, in a way that kind of closes off. I-, I-, I think like the joy of reading is that it's sort of a creative collaboration between and the author in some way. Like between the the thoughts that you bring uh, to the text and between the thoughts that the the author has put on paper, like there's a third thing that's created, which is your readerly experience of a book. Um, And I think often illustrations can be just kind of depictions of what happens in a story. And so they kind of lock down the reader's imagination in some ways because they sort of take away that invitation to play with the author. Uh so we really always try to approach uh, you know, they're really driven by our artists, uh, these books, but when we when we start editorial conversations with our artists, we really try to focus them on what uh, what the conceptual idea behind the illustration portfolio is. We really try to steer away from the easiest possible approach, which is just what are the big dramatic moments in this story and can I illustrate? Um, to me, it's much more interesting to approach things from some slightly more sideways angle. Um, what's like a vision of illustration that we can bring uh, to this thing that's that's not just taking the work that the author already did and depicting it. Um, one of my favorites, and we, I think we've come up with different solutions uh, with the artist for for each of the books we've done in the series. Uh, one of my favorites was when we worked with Bresht Evans on Peter Pan. Um, he did not, he, I mean, we had that conversation with him, and he really ran with that idea, and literally did not depict anything that happens in the story. Uh, his Peter Pan portfolio is all kind of expanding the borders of Neverland, and, like, inventing creatures, and, inv- and taking sort of characters that exist in the story, but Depicting adventures that are not described in the book, so it's really taking it in a whole different direction, where he's he's telling his own stories in the Neverland universe. Uh, and to me, that kind of conceptual approach, uh, where you really try to you try to create something that's very different from what's on the page, and hope that between like your imagination as as an illustrator the uh, author's imagination as an author the reader's imagination as a reader that there's some like new sandbox that's created and i think mike did that so beautifully in sort of building out a kind of puppet world uh inside of pinocchio um instead of like illustrating a lot of these big dramatic moments he's kind of uh giving you this sort of like proscenium stage and like a cast of characters and, uh, Oh, a a sort of, uh, a lot of what he did reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you know what toy theater is, uh, but in like the early 20th century, like there was like a really popular, uh, like trend of like creating these little, like cut out paper doll puppets. And often they would be printed in the newspaper, like sort of, uh, the idea being that you could you can cut them out of the newspaper and you can paste them onto like a popsicle stick and then you have these little puppets that you can use to like put on plays uh, a lot of what Mike is doing with his portfolio reminds me of sort of toy theater stuff because they'll be like very minor characters and they'll be they'll do little portraits of them um and so a lot of it is kind of uh creating a, a sense of this world and inviting you as the reader to like bring it to life uh, in a sort of imaginative way. Um, and yeah, to me, that's a lot of the joy of, of, of what Mike did. Is it, it really, there's a sense of playfulness to it and a sense of humor to it. And I think those things really exist in Calodi's work also. Uh, and so I really do feel like they're, in, they're inviting the reader uh, into a sort of like playful relationship. Text, which is really what we hope all of our illuminated editions do, and I think
0: this is really brilliant. Well, this is the tenth illuminated edition, and it's it's fair to say you're certainly making this one special. Um, Presentation is everything, so talk to me about kind of the the physical physical construction of the volumes themselves. You know what goes into it exactly. You know with the printing. You know how are we doing that? That sort of thing.
1: Well, we have a sort of standardized. Construction of these books—they're all like a, a big, oversized nine by twelve format, um, which is really designed to uh, allow the artist like a lot of space to work and to really like draw the eye to the to the visual aspects. Um, they each come in a slipcase, which is both embossed and debossed, so it creates a kind of three-dimensional sculptural layer on the slipcase. The slipcase has a die-cut circle that shows the art inside Um, and a a big part of like our concept for this design is that uh, when I first came up with the idea for this line uh, it it was really inspired by my obsession with uh, 19th century antiquarian like small press illustrated books uh, which were often like books aimed at adults uh, that had like you know Beautiful, beautiful illustration in them and incredible design. Um, but then when I started working with Myel and we started building this, this line and sort of conceptualizing it, uh, what we realized we could do was we, we didn't want to do something that felt busty and old fashioned and uptight and Victorian um, as much as I really, really love those books. Uh, they're of their time. So we started thinking about what would the books of now look like if they had this level of of design and of obsessive engineering and craftsmanship? Uh, so we came up with this look for them that feels, in my opinion, kind of futuristic. They almost feel like they're from, uh, you know, the, the 22nd century of antiquarian publishing. Um, so that's part of the joy of them is taking these hundred-year-old texts and, and presenting them uh, in this sort of incredibly sleek, incredibly designy, incredibly sort of like futuristic voice. Um, so they're, uh, they're really intended to, to like bring uh, uh, these stories of the past into the future of publishing, kind of how we think about it. Um, and uh, so that's a, a big thing that we think about when we're figuring out the design of these books. It's kind of like, how can we make them fit into this kind of futuristic illuminated editions world that we've built? Uh, which really, in our in our vision, and I, I hope what what that does is really recontextualizes those texts and makes you think of them as things that are alive today, and not things that are just historical artifacts, things that are, you know, in their own context and are still sort of uh, growing and changing. Even though the text is not changing, their context is changing. So we're bringing them into confrontations with the world as it exists now, and with readers as they exist now, and with the preconceptions that people bring, um, and the the uh, you know personal narratives that people bring. And so that's something that we think about a lot uh, when we think about how to design these things. Uh, and it's it's really Myel's Myel's brilliance. Like she has a way of thinking about this stuff that really unique and her own. Uh, and I really don't think these books would look like anything else that's on bookshelves. Um, and that's that's really exciting to be able to do something that really feels singular. And that's that's part of her Well,
0: Is the print run dedicated solely to Kickstarter kind of plus a few more? You know, I know there are a few copies of the other nine volumes available with with the Kickstarter, but it isn't the kind of thing you can just affordably print off 10 copies for the next comics convention on demand. Right. No, we're, definitely we're, we're fancier not. than that.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, they're, they're, they're like, like, you know, like expensive to produce for one thing. Yeah. And yeah. you need to do a decent run of them just to justify, you know, making all the, all the dyes and there, where, whether we're silk screening a slipcase and, uh, are we're die cutting things and we're embossing things and we're debossing things and we have foil blocking and we have like, we have all this different stuff. Um, uh, that you can really only do in a relatively large print run. So a normal first print run for us is about 2500 copies. That's kind of relatively standard for most of our books, though it can vary uh, either up or down. Um this one I think is probably going to be a bigger first print run based on the success that we're having on on Kickstarter. This is pretty unusual for us. Uh so maybe for this one we'll do 4000 or 5000 copies. I don't I don't actually know. Um uh, but uh but yeah, so we we'll, we do also release them in bookstores. We also sell them through our website. Uh, we we have them for sale sort of all over the world, uh, and uh, so yeah, we don't normally just just produce like the Kickstarter plus a handful of copies. We'll do the point of the Kickstarter is to kind of fund our full print run of 2,000 two thousand or twenty five hundred copies. Okay. Um, so and we've actually sold out of one of the books so far. Uh, and I, I, we have several others that are getting getting pretty close down to the wire. So, uh, Yuko Shimizu's edition of the Fairy Tales of Oscar Wilde was our first one to sell out for uh, the first books we put out, and that that one is currently uh,
0: we're doing a second edition of that, and that comes out over the summer. Are there any potential surprises with with stretch goals or anything playing like that, or or even potentially more releases of the signed edition? Because I know this the signed stuff just went super fast
1: it went so fast and we did uh we did release so i don't think we're doing more signed editions i'm just afraid of breaking the fingers of um, of mike (laughs) video and Lemony Snicket, who have already been so generous and signed so many copies of the book um but we did do uh some other high-end editions that have like the fancy production aspects that we are uh doing for the uh for the limited edition versions we have uh there's a version we call the Marionette version that comes in like a cloth bound slipcase and it comes with an exclusive like a foil blocked print from Mike. We've been doing these foil blocked prints recently. They're so, so beautiful. And they come with like an enamel pin and a silk bookmark. And they have uh, like the edges are blocked with foil. So they have these like shiny colored like edges of the book block, of the edges of the pages. So beautiful. They're so next level. Uh, and then we have uh, this really high end thousand dollar edition that comes in. Uh, I wish I, I, I actually just sent it off to the Society of Illustrators where we're doing an exhibition right now, uh, or I would show you a copy of it. We have these huge oversized editions called the Puppet Master Edition uh, that come in these clamshells with like a uh, with a die cut metal plate bolted onto these French door enclosures that are magnetized. It's wow. so beautiful and so crazy. And it does not look like anything else uh, that exists out there in the publishing landscape I'm aware of. It's um, like a
0: grimoire, almost exactly like- it does. Yeah. It
1: looks like this crazy huge like spell book. yeah. Um, and that's really what it feels like. Uh, and so, yeah, those are really really cool editions uh, that we we did basically because there was such a demand uh, for them. And the the version that comes with an original drawing from Mike sold out uh, within like, minutes uh so yeah, it's been it's been crazy. Uh and so yeah, no, no more signed versions, but some very cool stuff. And uh we do have some stretch goals uh that will maybe make the foil print uh available at lower tiers, uh, or maybe make the uh pin available with the book. We've had, we have a lot of other stuff we're talking about. I don't want to announce the stretch the extra stretch goals too soon, but um, uh, but yeah, we've already hit one of the stretch goals we're doing a really cool bookmark uh we have another stretch goal we're only ten thousand dollars away from um we're doing everything we can to like make as everything that it deserves to be based on the work that these amazing authors did for us
0: well let's talk about some of why you wanted to go and and do kind of rework these classics in the first place you know as a publisher you could take on any number of projects you could go on in a lot of different directions, you've kind of already talked about your your love of the of the older books like that um, but you also could have taken there's there's a lot of stuff out there right now, like uh Leah bardugo's shadow and bone right that that would a, an edition like this w- would certainly shine you know yeah, so, totally. so why the classics
1: well i to me there's just something interesting about bringing the past into confrontation with the present um and uh, that's part of the challenge that we have, like with this line, like I I do see it as this like meeting of past, present, and future. Um, And I I don't necessarily know that the illuminated edition series always will focus on the class. I mean, part of, part of the joy for us uh, is the freedom of it. And like that we can, that we can sort of what we're going to do. And a part of that freedom is the fact that we get to build our own idiosyncratic canon here, um, and you know the the fact that this line can take something like The Great Gatsby and put it next to Algernon Blackwood's uh, The Willows, um, or, or I can take you know a a book that's sort of criminally underread like The Blazing World, like Margaret Cavendish's. 17th century sort of bizarro masterpiece that's you know centuries ahead of its time um that we can draw people's attention to something like that um and it sits alongside crime and punishment uh and that those those literary classics like Gatsby and crime and punishment can sit alongside things that are seen more as genre classics like the island of Dr. Moreau um, the fact that we get to build this shelf of books uh, that include, like you know, somewhat obscure masterpieces, and then absolutely universally beloved classics, that they include children's literature and Dostoevsky alongside each other—it's all a reflection on on our tastes and predilections, meaning mine and myel's, the the tastes of the artists that we work with uh the the tastes of the readers and collectors who support our work and and make it financially possible uh, and what you wind up with is this thing that has a, there's all these rivers that 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 flow into this one tributary and you get this really cool series of books that kind of makes this statement about literary history and that statement may be somewhat self contradictory and it may be coming from various directions uh but as it's growing, I think there is a sort of like creative vision that kind of emerges from it. Um, and we get to kind of tell a little story about literary history uh, in, in that challenge. And uh, that to me is, is a genuine pleasure uh, and a really unique thing to have to try to figure out and to get to think about. Um, and so that's the impulse behind it. But, you know, I I, I don't think we're necessarily married to every every book being you know, in the public domain or older than a certain age. Uh, uh, we want them all to fit and we do see all of these as classics, but there's modern classics being produced every day. You know, I, we, I, if we get to make decisions about what's a classic and what's not, uh, that's a. That's a prerogative that we you know maintain for ourselves and for and for our authors and for our illustrators.
0: doing my background research, it sounds like there was a bit of a family legacy to to it or at least an influence uh, from your grandparents. I was reading something about your your grandfather Hirsch and and your grandmother, which instilled in you this love of books
1: Well, yeah, i mean my my grandfather, uh who was also from Philadelphia, I'm not from Philadelphia, but I've lived here for many years uh but he he grew up here uh and he was a you know he was a just a book lover and a collector of books and my grandmother still has his you know giant like like overstuffed library uh but at some point she gifted me uh his his collection of antiquarian like illustrated fiction um which are i mean It's just amazing how beautiful books are. And I've been obsessed with them since I was a child looking at them at my grandparents' house. Um, And something that I only noticed, you know, many years later uh, as I, as I was, you know, getting interested in, in publishing myself and was, was, was doing some comics publishing and things like that. Um, I realized how many of these books were produced by small presses, uh, and I realized even that some of them uh, had a page in the back where they thank uh, their subscribers uh, who would, you know, subscribe to that, like buy every copy of every or buy a copy of every book that these small presses would put out. So that would be one way that they could afford to do small print runs of these really high end, like gorgeous. Incredibly beautifully designed books, and I noticed that, and I was like, "This is a Kickstarter, basically. Um, this is the exact same business model that we're working off." They these these presses had a relatively small readership; they did not have huge corporate backing, um, but they were able to do these incredibly beautiful things because they had a committed audience of readers. It was a small audience, but it was a committed audience. They knew they would follow them the book; they could rely on them. To fund project after project. Um, and a lot of these small presses were even based in Philadelphia. Uh, because, you know, I assume that's the reason uh, that my great-grandfather collected so many of these books, because they were, they were more available in Philly bookstores. Uh, so that was really fascinating to me. And it made me feel a kinship uh, with a sort of Philadelphia literary tradition as a Philadelphia press publisher. Um, and it just made me think about the fact that you know, a big part of the reason we launched beehive is just a feeling that the publishing industry is broken in many ways. And it doesn't allow you uh, to produce the kinds of things that I believe should exist in the world. And I think that there is a readership for that. I think there's an audience of people that will buy them, but they just kind of don't fit into the publishing landscape as it's currently constituted. Um, and so I'm always thinking about business models and what drives, uh, what like the way the the ways that business models drive what's available in the marketplace, and our company was in some ways an attempt to to make things available that that wouldn't otherwise be possible in a more traditional publishing model. Um, so it was fascinating to me to sort of harken back to these to these older models that uh, that kind of worked then and. Were forgotten for whatever reason uh but they kind of still work today um so uh yeah that's part that's part of uh, what i guess uh how how my my grandfather's sort of uh literary habit fed into uh my own publishing practice uh but it's uh it, it, it's a joy to see to see these books that my My grandma still has my grandma's 97 years old at this point, but she's still hanging in there Um, and she still uh, she still loves books. uh, And, uh, you know, I'm I'm from a literary family. I guess you could say my dad is a book editor and a writer. Um, So uh, in in some ways, this is the family business. But uh, but my grandfather was not in the literary world. He just he just loved books. These are my great grandfather's books. Um. And he passed that on to my grandma, and uh, she, in some ways, passed
0: it on. I am glad I'm not following the family business of going into public education. <laughs> That's a tough world.
1: Yeah, that is a
0: really tough world. Well, beehive books. I've kept bees before. I love them. I do what I can to raise awareness you, about how. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, I've always wanted to get into it. I never have. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Funny aside story. Um. Loving bees the way I do. My wife is terrified of all stinging insects. So at our wedding, we had an outdoor wedding. We actually, and it was uh, close to the bay. And we actually had to have one of the groomsmen and their job was to make sure if there were any flying insects that came near her, she would not go run and jump into the bay during the ceremony. Oh, my God. That would be a dramatic moment if she did, though. (laughs) Indeed. Luckily, it did not happen. Um, And, yeah, we're coming up on 20 years next year. So we're going to do it inside next time right that makes avoid sense, any
1: problems. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs>
0: but yeah i i really like to to raise awareness about bees how fragile our food system is without them so you know beehive books where did it come from
1: well i mean the idea was just that we uh, we had this this business model in mind which is basically a crowdfunded where like we we know if we can get people behind this thing we'll be able to do a lot of Um, so part of the idea behind it was that there is a community of these passionate, uh, and creative individuals that is behind all. I, um, I love the idea that our readers are not just customers. They're not on the receiving end of all this stuff. It's their funding that makes this possible. It is Literally, like they are in a in a very real, material way, the co-creators of this line, and therefore the co-creators of these books. So, we had this idea in mind where we sort of consider our readers to be our collaborators. Um, and I just love this vision of you know a, like a countless horde of these these tiny little creatures who together can create this massively beautiful and mysterious, like, organic factory that produces this incredibly sweet and beautiful stuff. Um, and I, I find that, like, very inspiring just in the natural world, the idea of what bees actually are and what they do. And I find it very inspiring as a metaphor that, that people can, can do that together. You know, we're all individually so small and, like, there's only so much we can do as, as fragile, tiny humans. But when we really come together and work on something collaborative and creative, we do like magical, beautiful stuff. And so so that was, uh, Mael was the one who named the company. We had this uh, idea for a company and we were just brainstorming ideas. I think we, between us, we probably came up with 800 ideas for the possible name and we didn't like almost any of them. Uh, but as soon as she said, what about Beehive Books? It's alliterative and it has this collaborative quality. And it just sounded as soon as she said it, I think that's a perfect name for our company. That's it. Um, and yeah, that was kind of kind of it uh from from that point on. And uh we were reflecting on it recently. you know, we've been doing this since 2016, and we were like, you know, I still like the name. I'm not tired of saying it. like I, I still feel good about beehive books, and that after seven years, if you're not bored of it and you wish you had a cooler, different name. Um, that means it must be the right name for us. So we so, gotta um, live with yeah. it now. Yeah. No. Totally. And uh, and yeah. you know, in many other. We could have come up with another name that we're like it sounded cool at the time, and now it's it's who we are. So it's fine. But uh, yeah. I, 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 I wish we had something sexier. But uh, I really like Beehive Books, uh, and it really does make me feel good about the fact that it it honors our uh, not just our. Our authors and our collaborators, but our our readership too, because um, I always try to keep an eye on the material nature of these things, like the the fact that the funding of the readers is making it possible, the fact that the the labor of our printers is making it possible, the fact you know it's so easy to sort of fall into a sort of uh, term I'm I'm looking for, like a sort of auteur theory trap about books that they are really like the creation of one author and that's what makes them what they are. They're, uh, you know, they, they come from a million directions at the same time and they are physical objects that the author had very little to do with creating in a lot of ways. And, uh, um, and there's a, a tremendous amount of collaboration that goes into them and, uh, and there's just material circumstances that make them possible or not possible, uh, so I, I I always try to think about that when we when we think about what we're doing here, um, and I'm glad that we have a name for our business that kind of that uh, kind of honors the like collaborative creation uh, that goes into publishing.
0: Well, yours is a kind of an interesting progression when I was reading about it: comics writer, comic shop owner, indie comics festival organizer, illustrated book peddler. sound like a bit of a restless spirit, so. You think the publishing world is is your stopping point, or are you gonna come full circle and end up writing again?
1: I, I mean I do still write. Uh I, I do still write comics and other stuff and criticism uh sometimes. How do you uh, have time to do all that? It's that crazy. is the problem. I don't have yeah. as much time as I used to. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean uh, we, we I I've done a bit, several graphic novels and stuff. Uh we have I have a graphic novel that uh my friend Gideon Kendall who's an amazing uh, illustrator and cartoonist and I are are working on right now that we're actually, uh, we're trying to pitch to other publishers and stuff. Um, But I don't have as much time as I used to, to work on, on creative projects. Beehive kind of became the creative project at some point. Uh, But really I think like where my heart is, is like in two places, I guess. Like I just love like comics and illustration and storytelling Um, and I love collaboration. I really, really like getting to work with people who are much smarter and more talented than me. Like that to me is always the most exciting thing when you get to collaborate with someone who you feel genuinely in awe of and challenged to try to keep up with, uh, which I feel about pretty much all of my collaborations. That's how I feel about Mael, who's my partner in Beehive. Like I always feel like she's such a genius and I'm just trying to keep up with her. And uh, with our authors that we we work with, I just feel so honored by the fact that we get to like have this collaborative, creative uh, relationship. Um, and it's a part of what I was drawn to about comics writing. I just love working with with illustrators and trying to figure out interesting things uh, that will bring out the best in in their work, I try to come up with images that'll keep them engaged and challenged and uh, um and excited about about the work. Um so it I guess if you look at like sort of my resume it does feel like a lot of chaotic like stuff but in the experience of it it all really just feels like sort of one foot in front of the other and then interesting stuff happens and you kind of pursue those interesting things and I think the through line is being interested in collaborating uh and and you know building communities creative community And uh, uh, really trying to trying to work with other people to try to it. I, I, you know, I I went to school for, for writing. I mean, writing is uh, what I studied in college. And uh, at the, at that time in my life, my, my life plan was just to be a writer. And I did discover uh, when I was first out of school and really trying to hustle, I was writing all kinds of stuff and I was publishing, you know, some like journalistic kind of stuff here and there and trying to, write novels and plays and a million different things. Uh, I just discovered how lonely it was like to sit there and write. And I like that to some degree, but like I need something else on the other side of that. Like I like the, the freedom of, of sitting with a piece of text and working on it. But I, I don't think I have the personality of like a novelist who can sit there for two years with a piece of text working on it. I need it to turn into something. So I, I get feedback and get a feeling of momentum and get a feeling of like, um, and also I just like to hide behind
0: people who are smarter than me. And more talented <laughs> it's creative. a good plan. I've done it my whole like, life.
1: Yeah. It, it's been working out great for me. So, yes. uh, so, uh, so yeah, that's really what my choices have been uh, driven by. I think. And, uh, and it's, I, I just feel very lucky that I, I, I get to do such, such fun and interesting stuff as a career. And it can be hard to make money doing this stuff sometimes. But, uh, but the fact that, that it's, 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 you know, kept me, uh, uh you know, like fueled up with however many pop tarts I need to buy. And uh, that I've, I've been able to at least somewhat pay my, my rent is a
0: beautiful thing. Well, I'm going to be that guy. You're knee deep in this one. Do you already know which volumes next? I mean, you've, you set the bar pretty high with mignola right um yes so. well
1: i i shouldn't reveal it because you don't, don't have, have to, to give it movie away movie. but it's clearly you have a plan well yes we have the the next two books are actually the art is already finished uh we okay. have two two more titles uh that should be coming out in the next year or so uh we're working on the design work for them now we have two incredible illustrators. Uh, um, who I mean like I think we're we're gonna blow some minds with these next two titles. It's gonna be hard to top what we're doing with pinocchio, uh, but the next one we're doing is one that I have been really excited about for a really long time, so people should should stay tuned for it. Um, it's gonna be a beautiful thing, and it will be something of a descent into hell i will I will say that much as a tease,
0: uh, nice, okay. Well, where can everyone find you or
1: Beehive online? Uh, So we are at beehivebooks.com. That's our website. Uh, We're at beehivebooks on Instagram. Uh, We are at, uh, on Twitter, we're at beehivebks. Very annoying. Somebody already had beehivebooks. You can find me at, you can email me at josh at beehivebooks.com. Our offices are here in Philadelphia on Ludlow Street.
0: Come over to the office if you want. we're an open book. I like it when people reach out to us. Well, as a book publisher, having a policy that's an open book—come ah, on, that's yeah, weird. exactly. That's exactly. that's really on the head. It's who we are. It's who yeah. we are. Well, if you haven't backed this project yet, everybody should get in on this. Um, it, it's it's really special. It sounds really special. As a bibliophile myself, I can assure you that adding this to your collection really is a must. It sounds so cool, Josh. Thanks for coming on the show and chatting with me today. Appreciate it.
1: Byron, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me and for letting me
0: ramble. Yeah. Well, this is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.